I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi. This is Season 5, Episode 16 on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and it's titled, You Can Begin Again. And I'm recording this on Thanksgiving morning, so happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope that you have a wonderful and grateful day. I hope you enjoy your food coma, because I know I will. Uh, let's just jump right into it this uh, day. In the last episode of uh, Gospel Wabi Sabi, we heard a challenge from the Apostle Paul where he compared his life with Christ with that of an Olympic athlete, how Paul trained hard to serve Christ, just like an athlete trains to be the best they can be in their sport. He lived a disciplined life. He made daily sacrifices for his faith so that he could be totally committed to God's call on his life. And we were sort of left with this question, what would it take for you to follow Christ like that? With the same zeal and passion and commitment as Paul. No doubts, no compromise, no hesitations. 100% committed with your whole heart. I know what it would take for me. I know what it would take for me. It would take a miracle. And what I mean by that is that I've often thought that maybe my faith could reach that next level if only I had personally witnessed Jesus performing one of his miracles. You ever felt that way? If I could somehow jump into a time machine and go back and actually be there and see Jesus heal someone, uh, seeing a miracle like that would kind of put me over the top when it comes to really living for Christ. Uh, you know, like the healing of the paralyzed man whose story is told in Mark chapter 2. One of my favorite stories, paralyzed and helpless, uh, laying there on a stretcher at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus just says the word, and his withered limbs take on new strength, and nerve and tissue come together. And to the amazement of the man and the amazement of everybody else in the room, he stands. I mean, can you imagine seeing that kind of healing? Not like the hucksters and charlatans who peddle healing today, but the real thing. Or witness the feeding of the 5,000. Or see Jesus walk on water. Or be there at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. Or with the disciples when he appeared to them after the resurrection in the upper room. Maybe if I saw that kind of miracle, then I could follow God with my whole heart. What about you? If you could just witness a miracle, if God would just do a miracle in your life, is that what it would take for you to follow the Lord with your whole heart? If God would give you a special sign, a special answer to your prayers, a shooting star in the heavens, or a personal visit like St. Paul had on the road to Damascus? Or what if you were able to hear God's voice audibly speaking directly to you, like a megaphone from heaven? Some experience that would give you undeniable proof, would that do it? Is that what it would take for you to get to, to follow the Lord with your whole heart? Well, the Apostle Paul has been challenging the Christians in ancient Corinth to go deeper in their walk with Jesus, to stay on mission, and to be God's people as a community in that city. They were a small minority surrounded by hundreds of pagan religions. They were going against the flow every day, every day, swimming against the current every day. But their faith was going off course. Rather than creating a loving community that proclaimed the lordship of Christ, bickering and infighting kind of consumed all of their energy. It was hard for them to follow Christ, and when life gets hard, there's a tendency, tendency to fall into if-only thinking. If only, <coughs> excuse me, if only we could see a miracle that we've heard about from the past, then we'd be able to deal with the pressures of our day. If only God would show his power like he did before, just once, that would put us over the top. If only God would answer our special prayer in some dramatic way, then my faith would be strong and unwavering. If only we had the miracle, then we'd have the strength to live for him. 
Well, the point Paul is going to make as we read in chapter 10 is that faith doesn't always really work that way. Authentic faith, authentic discipleship isn't developed through exposure to the spectacular. No, real faith is developed in the trenches of everyday decisions and everyday temptations. Let's listen in as he gives us a quick Old Testament history lesson to show how those who saw God's greatest miracles were the very ones who subsequently stumbled very badly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, Quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, unquote. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did, and they were killed by a destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Paul's history lesson starts off with a recap of the most significant event in Scripture next to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's when Moses led the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt towards the Promised Land. Verses 1-4 through describe the great story told in the book of Exodus as God performed one miracle after another to get the Jewish people out of Egypt, one miracle after the other to sustain, protect, and guide them on their journey to the Promised Land. Miracle 1. Moses met God at the burning bush, and then he goes to Egypt to challenge Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, so God brought plagues against them that that struck Egypt and finally brought Pharaoh to his knees. The Hebrews witnessed all these miracles, including the final plague that forms the basis for the Jewish Passover celebration to this day. That miracle was so significant, they enshrined it in that sacred ceremony, the Passover meal that Jesus even shared with his disciples. And then God leads them through the Red Sea, miraculously parts the waters, brings the people to safety on the other side. They see God in action. They know that he is a God who delivers. But the miracles aren't even over. Once they cross the Red Sea, God leads them through the Sinai Desert, and God sent a cloud of his presence to guide them during the day and a pillar of fire to guide them by night. And that's a pretty spectacular GPS system. Both the cloud and the pillar of fire were actually the very presence of God with them, what's called a theophany, a physical presence or manifestation of God. Every day they saw it, God's presence leading, guiding, protecting them, right in front of their eyes. 
And even more than that, God provided a daily miracle of food in the desert, the mysterious manna in the wilderness that's described in Exodus 16. You know how all there are all these uh, food plans like DoorDash that will deliver whole meals to your door now. Well, God was doing that 3,500 years ago. And then when they're getting thirsty in the Sinai desert and missed the turnoff for the oasis, God brought them water from bare rock in Numbers 20. So it's just miracle after miracle. Miracles of deliverance and guidance and sustenance, and God took care of their every need. What more could they want? Yet in verse 5, we're reminded of the rest of the story. God was not pleased with them. Well, why? Because even though they had more miracles in one day than any of us will ever witness in our entire lifetime, they grew complacent. They grew restless. They wanted more. They grumbled. Not manna again. Every day with the manna. Manna for breakfast. Manna for lunch. Manna and quail for dinner, fried manna, baked manna, manna casseroles, manna smoothies. We're sick of manna. They grumbled. They wanted a larger menu. And then they turned their backs on God. They took God's miracles and God's presence for granted. And they sinned against him in the worst ways. Exodus is actually a very sad story because it shows how easily um, the Israelites fell away from trusting God. Miracles don't produce faith. They produce fans. Let me say that again. Miracles don't produce faith. They produce fans. Fans are people who follow God only for the spectacular, for the show, for what they can get out of it. And if they don't get it when they want it, they fall away very quickly. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus was so private when he performed most of his miracles, saying to the people that he healed, don't tell anybody. Jesus' new faith built on the spectacular simply doesn't last. Look at verses 6 and 11. They bracket a warning from Paul for the Corinthians and for us. Verse 6 says, Now these things occurred as examples. Then verse 11 says, These things happened to them as examples. Exodus is not only the pattern of God's faithfulness, but also the pattern of how people fall away. It's a description of the downward spiral of spiritual defeat, a six-step process described in verses 6 through 12. Step 1, Verse 6, they set their hearts on evil. The turning away from God begins in the mind. Negative, sour thoughts. Thoughts of resentment towards God. Thoughts of how you don't need God and how you can do it on your own. Thoughts where God is just simply left out, where he is no longer part of your equation. At some point, people cross a line mentally, and God becomes an afterthought. Verse 2 and verse, or step 2 and verse 7 is idolatry. Not necessarily worshiping a statue or a false god or going to a pagan temple, though certainly those were some significant problems for the Corinthians. Idolatry simply means putting something else in God's place, putting something else on the throne of your life, giving something else first place, a job, another person, success, money, power, status, children, that new car, anything can be put in that spot. The throne of your life belongs to God alone. He won't share it with anyone. If anything else is on that throne... It's an idol. Step three, verse eight. This turning away from God works its way into your behavior. Here Paul uses the example of sexual immorality from Numbers 25, if you want to go back and read that story. Sexual expression can be a very strong lure away from the Lord. It could be other things as well. But the point is that idolatry works its way into some kind of action. Some small step at first. You step over the line just a little, see if there are any immediate consequences. If not, you keep going. Makes it so much easier the next time to go just a little farther. Cheating on a test, pocketing some money, no one noticed, but it grows. 
And in step four, in verse nine, people begin to test God. They think God won't mind. God doesn't care. God's not going to do anything. And so they modify faith to fit their actions, justify their behavior before God. You know, I couldn't help it. Not my fault. Step five in verse 10, they start to grumble. Start to grumble when the bills come due, when things don't work out as planned, when the consequences start piling up. Begin to blame God. It's God's fault that my life is so screwed up. How could he let this happen to me? And all this metastasizes into a spiritual complacency in verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, then watch out that you don't fall. Paul is saying, don't think it can't happen to you. Don't think it can't happen to you. There but for the grace of God could happen to you. Recognize we're all vulnerable. Look at your own heart. Make sure this pattern isn't developing in your life. Sour thoughts, putting something else ahead of Christ. Actions, behaviors that are taking you away from God or testing God or grumbling in your soul, giving up, becoming complacent. Is any of that at work in your heart this day? Well, verse 13 is the most well-known of this chapter. A lot of people know this verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Whatever is going on in your life, you are not being personally singled out. The troubles and temptations you're experiencing are common to all. The things you face have been faced by others before you. Throughout the centuries, this pattern of knowing God's goodness and greatness and then stumbling and falling, that's not a new thing. It's not so unique. God knows how inconsistent and vulnerable we are, and he loves us anyway. Just like Israel, time and time again, God brought them back. God delivered them all over again. God doesn't give up on them. He doesn't give up on you either. That's the good news of Jesus that we all need to share with the world. Jesus loves us in spite of our failures and weaknesses. He's still a deliverer, and he will stand by you no matter what. Jesus doesn't ever give up on you. The important thing, so, therefore, is that we don't give up on ourselves, that we don't wallow in shame or self-pity when we blow it. When we've surrendered to the sour thoughts or went on a downward spiral of grumbling and complacency, we don't give up because we recognize that with Christ there's always a way back or always a way through. This is one of the great promises in the Bible. I hope you have this verse underlined in your Bible and memorized, verse 13. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There was always another chance with God, always another choice, always a better decision. We always have the ability to choose a better path, always a way. The word he uses there is the image of an army overwhelmed and surrounded by the enemy. By, by the enemy. But at the last moment, they find an escape route, and they are able to evade the closing circle. They are able to regather their strength and fight again. God always provides a way. One of my favorite kind of old-time preacher illustrations goes back to the year 1888. An international chess master named Paul Morphy was on a tour of Europe, and he and a friend entered the Louvre Art Museum in Paris, and they came upon a painting called Checkmate by Friedrich Rich. It's a depiction of the story of Faust and Mephistopheles, the devil, and the battle for the young man's soul. There's a lot of symbolism in the painting that I can't go into now, but if you're into art, you can find the info easily on the web. For example, 
The advance of the black pieces across the board is paired with the approach of a spider towards Faust. And Faust, he represents humanity. The spider, with its power to spin a fatal web, symbolizes Satan's mission to ensnare the believer. So it's the young man's move. And he realizes that he believes he has lost the game. Satan appears arrogantly and confidently declaring checkmate. The agony of despair is revealed in every line of the young man's features and attitude, while the devil on the opposite side of the table gloats over him with this fiendish delight. The game appears to be utterly hopeless for the young man, and the reality of the consequences of his loss are flooding in. His soul was lost. Mr. Morphy, the chess expert, stared at the painting for the longest time, just transfixed. He stared at it so long his friend got bored and moved on. But Mr. Morphy stayed behind, eyes locked on the chessboard. All of a sudden, Morphy threw up his hands and shouted right there in the gallery, The king has another move! It's not over! The king has another move! Mr. Morphy was so excited he ran through the Louvre until he found his friend, brought him back to the painting, and showed him exactly how the young man could not only escape the devil's trap, but win the match. Morphy said, We've got to get to the museum. We've got to get them to change the name of the painting. The king has another move. Isn't that great? Friends, the game is not over. Whatever temptations or pressures we may face, there is hope. For the king always has another move. The temptation to despair, the temptation to give in to those sour thoughts, to depression, to going away from God, to give in to an addiction, to compromise your integrity, to forget about God. Whatever the temptations in your life, our good God always has another move. Our good God stays with you even when we blow it. Your life is not in checkmate. You are not facing a dead end. When Moses uh, stood on the shore of the Red Sea, mountains on both sides and Pharaoh's army behind him, it looked like a dead end. It looked like the game was over. But God had another move. Daniel thrown into the lion's den. Checkmate. Well, no, God has another move. The woman caught in adultery, about to be killed by angry men with stones. No, Jesus has another move. Paul and Silas shackled in a Philippian jail. Time's up. No, God had another move. Jesus on the cross, nails in his hands, rivets in his feet, spear in his side, buried in a borrowed tomb. The devil's thinking, checkmate, he won. No, the king has another move. In this game of life, we can lose our way, we can stumble, we can fall, we can feel like we're backed into a corner. We can be ready to give up and throw in the towel, but when those times come, we need to remember that the king always has one more move. Our good God loves us and is waiting for us to turn to him. He is the one who knows us even better than we know ourselves. He knows who we are, how we feel, and what we're capable of, and what we're up against. He knows our strengths, he knows our weaknesses. He will open the right door. He will turn on the right light. He will show us the right path to follow. He will give us the strength and grace we need. He will keep us close to his heart, not necessarily through the spectacular or the miraculous, but through his abiding presence throughout each and every day. He will provide a way so that you can endure it. The king always has another move, and so do you. Have a great week. <music>